Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagar Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Executive Director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. He is also associated with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is a former J-5 at U.S. Pacific Command uh, and one of the nation's thoughtful surface warriors. Mark, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me, Vago. Great to be here again. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries. And General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent sea airspace conference and trade show. Mark, again, thanks very much for, for joining us. And today I want you, wanted you to talk about uh, your strategy for how the United States defends Guam. And in fact, how do we defend forward? Given the Chinese are putting so much investment uh, on sheer firepower, the ability to deploy uh, both hypersonic uh, weapons at range with precision, but also area denial systems. Uh, and folks talk about agile combat employment, but then the counterpoint is, well, can I reasonably move that quickly, right? Let's let's start with Guam. What are some of the foundational elements that are in your plan, and how does the administration-specific defense initiative stack up uh, in your view? Some are criticizing it. There are some members of the Senate who are criticizing it. Whereas, if you actually look at it, it does some of the right things, even if the administration didn't take proper credit for them. Walk us through what your thinking is and how it is we need to be thinking to tackle this challenge. Hey, well, thanks, Vago, for introducing what's a really important topic, and that's you know the defense of Guam and how it fits in the broader Pacific deterrence initiative and even broader, you know, general defense strategy for the Pacific that the United States is developing right now. And I'm confident that as the United States develops its national security strategy and national defense strategy, and the new administration puts them out, they are going to prioritize China as our, as our number one challenge, uh, military challenge and our number one diplomatic challenge. And so I'm, I'm confident that part's going to happen. Of course, the question will become, the devil in the details, are we doing the right things operationally and even tactically to make that strategic commitment a reality? And um, uh, so for that, you then go to the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which really is about five things. It's about lethality, um, which is you know, kind of radars and sensor systems and strike systems, you know, and, and the Guam defense system fits right in there. It's about posture. It's about, you know, having the right base infrastructure, the right pre-positioning, you know, the right like repairs and dredging. And again, the Guam defense system and, and its elements are, are part of that. It's about joint exercise funding, you know, with your both with your high end partners, but also um, with your uh, with your, um, you know, with your uh, new partners like the Philippines and then the potentially, you know, Singapore, Vietnam. So it's not just about Japan and Korea. It's about alliance integration that makes that joint exercise work. And uh, and then finally, it's about the kind of the enabling forces. So it's a real mix of glamorous and boring. And that's, to me, that's good. It can't be all the glamorous new strike weapon systems. It's gotta be about the boring logistics, um, right. you know, the force, the pre-positioning of, uh, of uh, agile combat employment elements, you know, the kind of basing and you know, the stuff you need to roll a runway, to repair a runway, all that stuff. And all that comes together in the defense of Guam. I, you know, you, you um, I've told you before that I, I consider Guam like the, the joint capabilities 
Dante's seventh level of hell, because it's essentially defending an Air Force asset. Guam is more than an Air Force asset, but at its core, it's, it's defending Anderson Air Force Base, which in the JROC is a army mission. But we've come to understand that it's going to have to be done by probably principally by a Navy asset. Uh, you know, that is Dante's level of capabilities, hell. And, uh, and so from my perspective, we've got to really, the, the, the department's got to really focus on how you get the specifics of the Guam, you know, the Guam defense system built into their Pacific deterrence initiative going forward. I do think we need to say one very positive thing about the last budget. And, you know, uh, th this is the, the, the president's budget that was put forward for, for FY22 and is being, um, you know, tinkered with in the, uh, in the House and Senate. Um, the one core thing it had was it addressed the number one lethality issue that PACOM and, uh, and Pacific advocates have thought about, and that's maintaining our undersea warfare advantage. It called for two Virginia-class submarines, uh, and it called for a Tago ship, and it called for, you know, for uh, the, the appropriate procurement of the, uh, of the Mark 48 ADCAP torpedoes. That is critical. That is where we maintain our asymmetric advantage over the Chinese, and, and we have to continue to invest in that. So at its core, the budget hit the number one priority for the Navy and for PACOM was, was uh, satiated in, the, in that budget input. But there's a lot more we could talk about Guam, but I'll tell you, that's where Guam sits in the broader Pacific strategic uh, uh, effort. Are, are you, and, and, and there were a lot of very good elements to this budget and, and the criticism and the frustration, and I think you've expressed this uh, as well, was, hey, you guys didn't take appropriate, you know, you didn't take as much credit for the good stuff you guys did. Uh, and, and then uh, obviously uh, the administration is defending itself and saying that this, this, this plan uh, is better than, than people are giving it credit for. I want to take you to the specifics, right? Because as you said, a successful, right, the Chinese are very, very smart and they're watching and they're looking at each of these elements that are unaddressed, right? We have a wish list. Too much of what we do is more of a wish list than an actual, we're bending to the task of doing the things we need to do. In the end, this is about homework and about solving very big, complicated problems. And we kind of have buzzwords, but fundamentally, we lack the, you know, go ask Mark Busby, he's no longer the maritime administrator, but we only had 80 some odd ships. We expected, you know, something like two thirds of them to be sunk in the first week. Okay, so that impinges on your sea lift capability. Um, we still, it's not abundantly clear, right? Where are we on doing the hard work of solving some of these problems? Because when you ask people, okay, well, how much fuel do we need to get to Ulysses on a weekly basis in the event that we're operating distributed and things are getting nailed? And I understand some of this stuff is highly classified, but even some of the people who are involved in this don't seem to be entirely clear that we have the answer to some of these questions, right? Where do we stand on doing that hard work across each step of this so our adversary is deterred because they go, hey, holy crap, they've actually thought this through? Because it's not abundantly clear we have it fully thought through, is it? So what I'd say is I, I do think we have a, a, a fully uh, developed, um, exercised, assessed war plan for the different kind of like um, you know, branches or sequels that could develop in, in, uh, in the Western Pacific. In other words, East China Sea, Taiwan, South China Sea, kind of generically is what we, we tend to look at. Look, I think there are quality war plans written for that. Um, I think that they've been exercised. 
I think that the J4 at PACOM and the A4, N4, G4, you know, the different um, component commanders are doing a good job digging into the details you're asking about. Uh, I think the challenge comes when they identify a shortfall or a gap and they're trying to resource it. That's when it becomes complicated. If that gap doesn't meet what a service is already planning to do, then obviously, it, you know, the service views it as something that requires an offset. You know, it may not be in PACOM, but someplace else they're going to have to do less because there's no, there's no contingency funding to do this. I, I contrast this with UCOM, where we spent $26.9 billion, almost the exact amount of the Pacific Deterrence mm -hmm. Initiative, on the European Deterrence Initiative. That money um, did not come from service accounts. So when the Army said to um, UCOM, uh, you know, when the Army component said to the UCOM commander, hey, I need to store $4.6 billion worth of M1A1 Abrams here, you know, in, in Belgium or in Germany. Um, that money was sourced from an overseas, from an OCO account and not back from the, the Army services budget. As a result, the Army was like, okay, if that's what you need, you get it because there was no pain. In the Pacific case, the 27 billion we're talking about over five years comes from service budgets. Now, here's where you, know, you mentioned earlier that they didn't do a great job presenting it. And I'll give you an example. You know, in the, in the five point some billion that maybe 5.7 or so billion that was supposed to be this year, um, some of that several billion of it was already in service budgets. But when the Defense Department produced, it's like, here's how we're meeting the 5.7 billion, you know, in, uh, in FY22 for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. They didn't list that stuff, the kind of logistic stuff, the boring stuff, the base repair, the dredging, the procurement of, of, um, of uh, deployable air base sets, the, the procurement of LRASM. They didn't list that. Instead, they listed like we're buying a destroyer. I mean, even the secretary wisely, when confronted with this, said, I'll get back to you, to the Senate Armed Services Committee, because that was not a good answer. And so I don't want to confuse aren't doing it with aren't explaining it. What I'll say is, they're doing it, but not quite to the degree I'd want in a few small areas that are critical that would have required services bending to the knee of the Department of Defense and PACOM. I don't think they did that work yet. I think part of it was they were a new team. You know, they, they weren't yet fully bought off into every decision in the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Part of it was they maybe didn't agree with PACOM. But over time, I think when we see a re-explanation of this year, it'll be a little better. And then next year, hopefully, to be accurate. And next year, I hope that they can not only take care of what they should be doing next year, but come back and pick up the about billion dollars worth of stuff. I think they're not doing this year, maybe 1.2 billion that they're not doing this year, that they, um, you know, they'll pick it up next year and, and have that added amount in. Because PACOM's number, you know, these things haven't changed. Most of the things that Admiral Davison is asking for, Admiral Harris asked for for three years, Davidson asked for him for two and a half years. And probably Locklear asked for them for one year. So, I mean, this is a pretty well-trod list of things that are necessary. Right. The good news is, I think with Eli Ratner uh, and some of the other leadership you have in, in, um, in uh, the Department of Defense and with Lung Acolino out at PACOM, you know, we're going to get to the right answer at this over time. Um, let me ask you about effectors and defenders, right? I mean, ultimately, we have an adversary that has a lot of long-range capability. Uh, each one of these war games, we tend to get inundated and overwhelmed. Uh, we, do we have the right approach? And I know I'm asking this of an uh, Aegis uh, dis destroyerman, cruiserman, right? Um, do we have the right kind of approach, Mark, 
for defense, defense at range, um, because we tend to get a little Pollyanna. Okay, lasers will do it. Okay, well, lasers will be an important piece of it. But I think for some of the things, given how they're coming at us, the laser may be useful, but it's it's not yet there at those power levels. So we're going to need to fight kinetic with kinetic. Uh, obviously, there are things we can do with the electromagnetic spectrum we can't talk about. But then again, on offense, a lot of our effectors are remarkably short-range systems as opposed to longer-range systems, right? Do we have the right philosophical approach as the new administration works through its national defense and national security strategies? Do we have the right strategic approach to defense in depth and offense, offense at range? So uh, that's a great complex question, and I'll kind of try to break it up as constituent constituent parts. The, the first part is, and and I should, and, and not to interrupt, but right, there's a cost element associated with this, right? The other guy shoots a lot of 250,000, 500,000 weapons at us. We need multi-million dollar effectors both to strike and defend, right? So then there's a cost uh, imbalance question. Anyway, not not to make it even more complicated, but thanks. That's a great, yeah, bringing bringing the finances does not do well for the United States. I agree. Um, so um, for, first I'd say on the Guam defense system, I, I believe that they are, I think MDA, the Missile Defense Agency who's studying this will settle on the right solution, which is pick um, a series, a, a defensive system on which we can rely and is effective across the spectrum from ballistic missile down to cruise missile, down to, you know, you know, down to very short range uh, effects. So, um, you know, so from my, my perspective, I think that's that's Aegis Ashore, not Aegis Ashore as visualized in Europe, which is a ballistic missile defense system, but Aegis Ashore uh, with all the cruise missile defense elements, Aegis Ashore as an Aegis is out at sea, able to, to uh, work across that perspective. I think it can be enhanced by THAAD uh, remaining on island. That might be a decision you make. It can be enhanced by some Patriot if you would decide to push them uh, to Guam. But, you know, that kind of collective you know, a network system of, of, um, of sensors and, and shooters. And what I'd say on the sensors is I would not just have the one radar on the, uh, 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 you know, on an Aegis Ashore. I would not just have the one radar on an Aegis Ashore system. I'd instead have uh, the radar that you normally have with Aegis Ashore along with, um, you know, long range detection radars stationed elsewhere throughout the Marianas Islands, maybe uh, near the International Airport at Guam, maybe on Saipan or Tinian. You know, you can spread this out and really give yourself a good picture. I'd consider deployments of E2Ds, and if the Air Force is wise and buys the wedge tail, um, which is an Australian um, uh, electronic warfare, uh, uh, early warning aircraft, you know, Navy shore-based E2Ds and wedge tail up supporting this network, then you have a really flush network and you can really extend your ranges for counter detection and things. So you, there's a way to build a system and, you, and your shooters, your VLS launchers can be spread throughout the, uh, you know, Guam, for example, and potentially throughout the Marianas. There's an opportunity here for a lot of you know, for an expansive system, you don't have to define yourself by traditional uh, elements. And of course, you've just freed up three or four ships assigned to a tether, you know, you know, three or four to make one on a tether around Guam. So that's a big thing too. You've released ships out into the wild, so to speak, to support other naval missions. And I think you hit on something else, which is that it has to be integrated with the offensive side as well. And here's where I think the Army and Marine Corps come in. They can have their ground-based systems they can be spread around Saipan, Tinian, Guam. And let me tell you, we're still finding Japanese wrecked aircraft 
from World War II on, on these islands, um, you know, on Saipan, Tinian, uh, Rota. And so, I mean, it's hard to get through that jungle. The, the idea that the Chinese are going to be able to counter detect all these systems is highly unlikely so that we can spread that out, have the command and control run from Guam where the uh, Aegis Ashore system is. But, you know, you can imagine that uh, uh, and a, a, a network of offensive defensive systems, including the offensive systems, could be uh, large unmanned surface vessels with vertical launch systems on it that push out from Guam at the start of a crisis. And their job is to empty their, uh, you know, their uh, their cells as quickly as possible before they're hit. You know, there's a there's a lot of opportunity here for for it, it for good creative thinking around this issue. And I think we can create a lot of strategic dilemmas for China that reintroduced deterrence into their calculations. And another word from our sponsors, General Motors sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. In getting ready for this discussion, I remember TX Hamas's uh, piece from, I, I correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was in January 2021, uh, where TX was talking about um, having a more distributed warfighting architecture, using commercial ships, right, containerized weapons, more effectors on more different platforms, and to try to do it as cheaply as possible. And one of the advantages, right, with, with that volume and that size, you have better bunkerage, you have greater range, you have more persistence, and each one of the individual ships can be actually remarkably lean manned uh, at, at the end of the day. Uh, that, that's not to say you don't need your high-end warfighting ships, it doesn't mean you don't need any submarine frigates because obviously a big commercial uh, ship uh, is not going to be able to do it. But his point was, for tens of millions of dollars apiece, you might actually be able to get a lot of bang for your buck. What's, what's your sense on how to be using a more distributed architecture, a more innovative architecture, and one actually that relies less on what would be considered traditional warships if at the end of the day, you're trying to project fires and project defenses uh, at, at greater range in a more distributed fashion. So, you know, and I think, uh, I think you can achieve what TX was talking about with those uh, large unmanned surface vessels, that, that's the minimum. And they could be partially manned. I think uh, Brian uh, Clark's talked about this a little bit, the idea that, you know, they, you can choose whether or not to man them with a very low team or not. But in, in any case, um, uh, and the land-based systems. Um, I'm a little more nervous about just starting to containerize things and throw them on merchant ships and, you know, and on our USNS ships, you know, kind of changing the character of their assignment, and that might introduce legal issues. But what I would say is I think, you know, the Navy's approaching an LUSV program with this idea in mind. I mean, the primary reason to exist these would be to, uh, to have the LUSVs would, to be, would be to have these... Um, you know, uh, vertical launch systems or, uh, you know, almost certainly vertical launch systems and cells on board as, as, as we develop them. And then I think that's what the Army and the Marine Corps are pushing hard to have this uh, remote uh, maneuverable um, uh, launchers, you know, that they could put out uh, on, uh, throughout the, the island chain. I think that's reasonable. I, I don't think it covers everything, but I think it, it does make yourself a less appealing target and introduces doubt into Chinese planners. And then, and then introduces the opportunity for, um, you know, for deterrence to take hold. Elaine Luria, the member from the Democratic member from the Tidewater, retired United States Navy commander. Well, one of the questions she's asked about the unmanned large, uh, large unmanned surface combatant is, look, her point is on our destroyer, we had 
right? I mean, we would post all sorts of watches. You protect the weapons. You're telling me you're going to put a lot of weapon tubes on unmanned ships that are going to be over the horizon. Uh, you, you know, I mean, to, to her, there is a problematic element to that. And, and frankly, that's not unreasonable, right? I mean, you've got master at arms all over the place to make sure that your weapons are secure, uh, even on the same ship that you're on, right? I mean, what's the way to think about this problem and to reassure members of Congress who will look at it, including very knowledgeable ones like um, Ms. Luria, who are looking at this and saying, come on, guys, I mean, how are you going to assure the security of several hundred launch tubes over the horizon uh, when you know, we take things like piracy and uh, you know, not getting ambushed on the high seas seriously by manning up and you know, going to general quarters? I mean, how, what's your sense on how it is you accomplish that because is the, because some for some it's an idea that sounds really good, but then there's a whole bunch of practical issues associated before you execute it. Uh, hey, look, that's a fair question from Representative Luria. Now, I don't want to write the Navy's operational concept for him, uh, but what I would say is an operational concept for this would look at, hey, in peacetime, you're, they're probably a swinging at anchor or pier side. If they're pier side at Guam Station, then they're protected. Um, as you begin to see a crisis build up and you push these things out to sea, I think they go out partially manned. And they're in contact with a, a surface ship. A frigate would be a good ship for this, you know, um, either an LCS, but really I think a frigate would be the right one. And then at some point, the team could or could not, the partial team, jump off the, you know, get it, get in a, a rib, come back on over to the warship. And then it's then it maintains itself, you know, 10 to 25 to 50 miles away from the frigate. And I don't think that's an issue. I think the issue, what's going to place these LUSVs at risk is not going to be piracy. It's going to be an inbound anti-ship ballistic missile um, or an anti-ship cruise missile when they've been properly targeted. And my hope is by the time they do that, they've released their 48 weapons or however many weapons they have on board. Um, so I think there's a way to work our way through this. And I think that's one of the reasons you're starting to hear a little bit more like optionally manned. In other words, there's a small team routinely on it, but when it's, when it's, when the thing is the most likely target, it has no air defense and it's a likely target, but it hasn't released its weapons yet. You would pull the team off, you know, and then, you know, if it survives the first round, then it, the team goes back on, takes it back into uh, Guam for a reload. You know, there's a reasonable way to plan this. And obviously there's a lot more to an operational concept from that, but I could develop a reasonable operational concept in a few minutes. I'm confident the Navy can do one over the next uh, few years. Mark, I want to take you to the question of Afghanistan uh, messaging and alliances. Vice President Harris, obviously, in Asia on uh, what is seen to be a very important swing in the wake of the Afghanistan collapse. Uh, there's, there are questions that some are asking about the reliability of the United States as an ally. Uh, obviously, China making great hay about this, uh, telling Taiwan, see, America can't be trusted. On the other hand, I've spoken to folks uh, from the region who've said, actually, this is a very important signal that the United States is, is focused on the great power game uh, and indeed is ending uh, something that was a potential dis distraction. And the United States has a reputation for supporting allies and partners that will uh, invest uh, in their own security uh, and, and defense. Two-part question, does this send negative messaging? Does uh, the US withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and the nature of it uh, undermine America's ability to deter and then build bridges with allies and partners? And then second, what's the message of the vice president's trip and what does she need to be saying um, to make sure that we get maximum value out of this? 
That's a great question, Vago. And, and I'll take it the first part first, which is uh, you know, the impact on our allies and partners. And, and obviously, it's, it's not a good look what's happening there. And, and that's obvious that it's, uh, you know, it, there's some, you know, there's been some embarrassing moments for the administration. But this is a, uh, you know, a withdrawing from a capital that's been taken over by the adversary is going to be a painful uh, event. And you're going to have these kind of images. The, but trying to correlate this to the United States no longer being a superpower or opening the door from China and Russia, I, I don't think that's appropriate. If you think back to an anal analogous time, the U.S. leaving Saigon in 1975, you know the the impact on U.S. USSR relations and NATO wasn't that you know the Soviet Union was in a position to take advantage of this and weaken our relationship and partnership with the with the NATO allies. So um, there is an opportunity here for the for the United States to make a strong statement about what is our number one priority in the national defense strategy or national security strategy, and that's dealing with the challenge of China. Um, and so we need to look forward from that. And uh, and in that regard, you know, you know, leaving the Middle East, even though I think in the short term it's going to have a negative impact on our force structure in the Pacific. In the long term, this is about focusing the United States. On our, on our number one priority. Uh, again, I wouldn't go along with everything that happened in Afghanistan. I don't agree with the president's policies there, but I recognize the value in focusing on Asia and China. And that leads to the second part of your question, which is that the vice president's trip is important. Anytime the president or vice president engage in the theater with our allies and partners, it's an important um, exploitable event for us. This is a signal in this case, to directly to Singapore and Vietnam, the country she's visiting, but more broadly to the whole region, that the United States is committed here. And I like that she's concentrating as much on economic and diplomatic issues as military issues, because what the United States brings to these allies and partners is a comprehensive approach that says, we are open, we are transparent, we are a fair and equitable trading partner. We want to open markets to each other. We want to have the free and, and uh, you know, an unfettered exchange of ideas and intellectual property in a protected, legal, transparent way. All the things that China does not offer these countries, and they're very much big country, small country paradigm that they would offer a country like Vietnam or a country like Singapore. The United States has a completely different approach. Vice President Harris should be bringing that message to them. Now, look, on the security end, there's also a value here. At the end of her visit, we're going to have the, the uh, Malabar exercise off a of quad and major U.S. Um, warfighting exercises in, in, in the region uh, during the, the, the early fall. That's a strong signal to China that the United States is here to work with other like-minded, capable partners in Japan, Australia, and India. And that, pre that presents a deterrent effect to, to um, China. And if I could give you one last thing, it's Taiwan. And I know Taiwan's been targeted by the Chinese uh, foreign ministry and by, and by um, pseudo uh, governmental uh, uh, entities like the, like, like the Chinese press um, that, you know, hey, look what happened in Afghanistan, what could happen to you? I, I think the strong signal is to Taiwan is, look at our relationship with Japan over 70 years through, through uh, you know, uh, political groups that didn't always, you know, Democrat, Republican administrations didn't always get along with their Japanese counterpart. We maintained a strong, healthy relationship that both of us have thrived in. Look at our relationship with Korea over the last 65 years from the end of the war. This has been a strong, healthy relationship through all different kinds of political, uh, you know, matchups between our two types of government. So let's be clear, the, and what the United States has helped develop in those countries 
you know, democratic, open, transparent, you know, um, capitalist-based societies. And we we offer the same support to Taiwan. And, and Taiwan knows what they get from us. We have to be clear with Taiwan and we have to be focused that the competition with China over the, over the next two to three decades, it's what's going to frame um, success for the United States uh, going forward. So in that regard, her visit's important. The focus on China is important. Um, and then we just have to set aside the, uh, the kind of ugliness around the, the images coming, coming from Afghanistan and wish we had done a better job with the planning of the execution of that. Mark, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much. Thank you very much, Vago. It's been a real pleasure to be here again. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.